from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the CER podcast and to our first episode of 2021. Today we're going to be discussing the trade and cooperation agreement that the UK concluded with the EU on Christmas Eve 2020. We're going to talk about the substance of the agreement and what we can expect from the future UK-EU relationship now that the clock is no longer ticking. I'm Catherine Pye, Clara Marina O'Donnell Fellow at the Centre for European Reform, and I'm here with CER's director, Charles Grant and Sam Lowe, Senior Research Fellow. We're also joined today by David Liddington, who was Britain's Minister of State for Europe between 2010 and 2016. He's now the chair of the Royal United Services Institute and of the Conservative Group for Europe, as well as being a member of the CER's advisory board. Welcome to you all. Hi, Catherine. Hi there. Um, David, let's start with your overall thoughts on the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. How well do you think it serves the interests of both sides? Well, it, for, as far as both sides are concerned, it, it's a lot better than <laughs> no deal and uh, uh, a, a crash uh, by the UK out of the EU would have, would have been. I, I think I'd say from the, the EU side, um, they will be satisfied that uh, the solidarity amongst member states has held together pretty much throughout the negotiations. They've protected the integrity of the single market and they've demonstrated that there are some costs for choosing to leave. And, and it is quite interesting that some of the rather wild talk there was earlier on about other countries deciding to follow the UK out of the EU really have dissipated. For the UK government side, um, you know, they can point to the fact that there is not direct uh, Court of Justice of the European Union uh, jurisdiction over the United Kingdom, although I'll make the, the obvious caveat in respect of Northern Ireland uh, there and the, the elements of the single market uh, and custody that Northern Ireland is still, still subject, subject to. Um, uh, and clearly the, the fact that uh, there are not going to be tariffs and quotas on uh, direct sales uh, of goods between the, the, the UK and the EU remove one element of friction, though it cannot remove all the friction that is inherent on withdrawing from a customs union and single market free trade arrangement. The other thing I find interesting about the, the TCA is that when you look at the structure of it and what it does, um, it looks very much like an association agreement um, of the kind the EU has with other neighbouring states, but without the title of that. And it's sort of the, you know, the love that dare not speak its name. And the, I think that um, uh, it, what is intriguing is that the structure of this deal permits it to be developed to evolve over the years ahead, depending, of course, on whether that is something which uh, the United Kingdom government and the European Union collectively wish to do at some stage in the future. I don't myself expect that there'll be big changes to it anytime soon, but it carries with it that possibility of a relationship that can continue to evolve and need not be taken as frozen uh, in its legal form in, in, in the way we have today. And Sam, to what extent do you think that Britain succeeded in getting what they wanted 
Thank, thank you, Catherine. And just if, if if I may, just build on on David's point that he made at the end there that the agreement has this potential to evolve. I I, I fully concur with that with with that perspective. But I would also warn that it also has the ability to crumble away. It is it is full of review clauses, the opportunity for suspensions, and and it, and, and it can be terminated at a year's notice. So I think I think whether it grows into something. Uh, more comprehensive or gets whittled away is actually going to be a subject of great discussion over the coming years and, and, and much will depend on the nature of UK politics and whether the uh, the Europe question has really been put to rest or not. In terms of the negotiation itself, I think the UK was fairly successful in achieving its defensive interests. So if we think about uh, on governance, wanting to exclude the European Court of Justice from any disputes, wanting to ensure that the UK was not bound to EU subsidy rules now and forever, wanting to maintain that on issues such as non-regression, uh, it wasn't in relation to prescriptive EU rules, but instead to uh, levels of protection, which gives the UK a bit more flexibility to uh, pursue achieving those le- levels as it sees fit. But it did, of course, have to accept binding governance provisions it needed to accept in the end that if it failed to abide by its commitments on subsidies the environment and labor that the benefits of the agreement could be withdrawn either by dispute or unilaterally in some circumstances but on it's on the offensive interests i think where the uk didn't didn't do quite as well as it perhaps hoped because whilst we are we're always talking about a trade agreement that removed tariffs but did little else the UK did try and push the EU, at least initially, on some other issues to try and be slightly more accommodating. So this was on topics such as mutual recognition and professional qualifications, uh, issues such as mutual recognition of conformity assessment, which would be the ability for UK-based testing centres to continue certifying that goods produced in the UK meet European standards, but also on some issues around the temporary movement of uh, of people and on more fundamental issues such as rules of origin, which are the criteria which determine whether goods actually qualify for tariff-free trade or not. And on all of these issues, the UK did not get what it wanted. The EU said no, and the UK ended up having to accept that. Now, it is, of course, possible that in many of these cases, the agreement could evolve over time and be more accommodating. But I, I, I do think the UK probably was slightly too defensive and and focused on that aspect rather than trying to maximize the economic relationship but in a way that's what this agreement was always about it was about it was about achieving sovereignty it wasn't about retaining economic ties and it would be great to hear your assessment of what you think the deal means in in practice for british businesses so what are the extra problems that companies in the uk now face in trading with europe well, so m- many of the problems companies would have faced under no deal still exist. Companies now have to deal with lots of extra paperwork and declarations. We're talking about import-export declarations, safety and security declarations. If you're exporting products of animal origin to the EU, they have to enter via a border control post where they're subject to document checks, identity checks and physical inspections. If you're a services provider seeking to sell services across the EU, it's going to become much more difficult. You might have to operate on a member state by member state basis to determine what you're able to do as a temporary business visitor. Uh, It's going to be much more difficult to sell financial services cross-border from the UK into the EU, particularly as the EU hasn't yet granted the UK uh, equivalents on financial services. So it all just becomes much more complicated. And I think one of the interesting things of the 
recent weeks, uh, well, the week or so following the signing of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement and it coming into effect, is that it's not just been small businesses that have been struggling. We've also seen reports of businesses such as Marks and Spencer struggling to come to terms uh, with with the rules. So I think I think we're going to have a probably a couple of months, maybe longer. Of, of learning for UK business as as they adapt to the new rules and work out how to make them work in practice. And, and some will, of course, manage to do that. But for some, they will just think, well, actually, we're just going to stop trading with Europe entirely. So turning to the Brexit issue in British parliamentary politics, David, do you think that Europe, the Europe debate has been made to rest within the Conservative Party, at least for the time being? Well, I think, I think the first point I want to make, um, Catherine, is that um, for most conservative voters, even party members and, and MPs, the, 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 the prime feeling will be one of utter relief um, that this issue uh, is not there to dominate and divide in the way that it has been for, for so long. I think it's just wrong to think that um, you know, everybody got up in the morning, even in the Conservative Parliamentary Party, um, thinking about Article 50 um, or, or, or about um, you know, what their view was on non-aggressive standards for, for manufacturing industry. Um, you know, most voters, when you knock on doors in actual elections, want to know what their politicians are going to do for them on housing, on their daughter's school, on the hopes their son and his girlfriend have of being able to afford a house, um, how they get elderly uh, care for their mother. Those are the things that really bother people. And, and Europe for a time came up as one of the big issues, but I think particularly with COVID, I mean, it's, it's, it's not an issue that most voters want to see dominating the agenda and distracting government energy and attention. Um, will it go away as an issue? I think that the, I think that Boris Johnson and his sort of high command have, have have therefore quite a difficult balancing act to strike because on the one hand I can see the attraction to them of being able to say at the 2024 election we have to keep Brexit done and you know this chap Keir Starmer is going to try and drag us back into the baleful influence of Brussels um, bind us there um, on the other hand um, I think the public in 2024 will be a bit concerned about you know, banging on about Europe um, is that really what they're interested in about um, a fifth of the Conservative vote at the 2019 general election came from people who'd voted Remain, uh, and the party needs to hang on to those. And the demographic shift, the, 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 the growing numbers as, as time goes on, of those younger voters who had supported Remain being a greater proportion of the, the electoral role starts to have an impact as well. And that's before you get on to the question of the Union and Scotland and Northern Ireland, where actually it is not in the Prime Minister's or the Conservative Party's interests to be taking a hostile attitude towards the EU. What there won't be from what you might characterise as my wing of the Conservative Party, those of us who, who supported Remain, would will be a, a campaign to, to rejoin. I don't think that uh, there is an appetite amongst either the British public or the 27 member states of the European Union to be looking at that. I think it's, this is going to be a, a debate, a conversation rather, about how the relationship between the UK and the other European democracies and the EU institutions should evolve over the next 5, 10, 15 years ahead of us. And there I'm quite encouraged by some of the language that we heard 
Um, I thought at the press conference announcing the deal, the Prime Minister was much more conciliatory than he had been in, in terms of his tone. He talked about how the UK would still be uh, linked uh, historically, uh, strategically, culturally to the European Union. Michael Gove followed that up by talking about the TCA as being the first step in what he, he termed a special relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union. And, and the choice of that phrase, um, with the resonances about what British politicians always claim about the US relationship, um, I, I thought was very striking. So I think the question will be to what extent, now that you know, nobody can say Bre uh, Brexit has not happened, um, now that the UK, you know, I don't think government can say that we are a fully sovereign, independent country, um, to what extent it will now decide, right, we need to work out a new different type of strategic relationship with this very influential and important to us group of uh, democracies uh, together in the European Union that are living next door to us and on which we share, with which we share so, so many interests uh, in bringing down uh, carbon emissions, in combating extremism, terrorism and serious unorganised crime, in trying to manage the impact on European uh, societies, including through large-scale migration of the governance crisis uh, and socio-economic crises that are happening in parts of Africa at the moment. Um, and I think the Americans under Joe Biden will expect the European allies whether they're in the EU or not, to do more, not just spend more on defence, but also to exercise greater political leadership in parts of the world, not leave it all to the Americans to do that. And that does rather imply the UK and the EU you know, starting to think again, now the divorce is behind us, of how we are going to work together, what sort of relationship do we want in the future? And I think that debate will be uh, you know, there within the Conservative Party, I sincerely hope it will not be uh, one with the bitterness and the rebarbative nature that the, the debate over Brexit has been. And Charles, how is the trade agreement perceived in Brussels and by the EU member states? Well, I think as, as David Ludington said at the start of this podcast, it, they're generally quite satisfied with the way that the, with the deal has happened. They certainly they wanted a deal. I mean, one should start off by saying perhaps that um, everybody in the EU is pretty sad that Brexit is happening. With the one or two voices in France who see opportunities more than problems resulting from Brexit. But certainly in 26 of the 27 member states, Brexit is seen as a, with much regret. In France, there is a divided opinion, I think. But uh, the, the EU fulfilled its objectives. The EU stayed united. The, the British tried very hard to play a game of divide and rule amongst the 27 without much success. Um, the EU's was very worried about the so-called level playing field provisions, the idea that um, the UK outside the EU would become a kind of Singapore on Thames and slash social environmental rules, pump money, lots of money into, into state subsidies, into its industries and so on. In my view, those fears are greatly exaggerated. There's not much chance, even of a Conservative government, adopting a Singapore on Thames model. But he's been reassured on that now because uh, if the EU does, if the, sorry, if the UK does deviate too far from... EU standards, then there's a provision which allows the EU to punish Britain by withdrawing trade concessions to it and imposing tariffs. So there are, there are there's an independent mechanism to sort that out. Um, so the EU's quite happy about that. 
And I think more, more generally and politically, the EU wanted to set an example of the UK. The EU is quite keen, particularly President Macron, but other leaders too, to show that Brexit doesn't, doesn't pay off, that Brexit hurts. The EU didn't want to hurt the UK too much. If the UK economy collapsed, that would also be very bad for the EU economies. But it wants, to, wants the UK to suffer a bit so that those people like Marine Le Pen or Matteo Salvini in Italy or other Eurosceptics can't make the case that life is better outside the EU. Life must not be seen to be better outside the UK, the EU for the UK. And I think the EU achieved its objective of hurting the British a bit, but not too much. All of this, so I think um, uh, the EU's done, done pretty well generally. I mean, one should perhaps say that there are also some mercantilist objectives lurking in France and some other countries. I mean, the EU, as I said, the French see, see opportunities as well as problems. And certainly for financial services, the defence industry, aerospace, uh, the car industry, the, the, the French hope and others in Europe hope that the problems the British will face will lead to more industries and more services migrating towards the EU itself. And Charles, what are the main outstanding issues that the deal does not cover which need to be negotiated? And what can we expect in the coming years? I think Sam has already referred to some of the sort of ongoing issues that, uh, such as financial services, uh, data, uh, those are areas are areas which which hopefully the British might get a good deal in the end, but they don't have much at the moment to speak of. Things like um, SPS provisions, which are the checks on food and farm produce crossing the borders. The EU is imposing quite a tough regime on that at the moment. Maybe in the future that can be improved upon. Maybe a future uh, British government want to rejoin the Erasmus student exchange scheme. There are some details that I think we will be in a non-stop permanent negotiation with the EU probably forever, as the Swiss have found that they are constantly negotiating with you. But in, in, in big terms, there are, I think, at least five important issues which will be sorted out in the coming decades, or, or not sorted out. There are five big questions about the future EU-UK relationship, which we don't really know the answer to. One is foreign policy and defence policy. The, the TCA just ignores it that Britain didn't want any structural links to the EU on foreign policy and defence cooperation. But as David Livington remarked, that's very, very important for the uh, future of European security and indeed the West more generally, that there is some close cooperation between the UK and the EU. Now, can it all be done informally as the British government wants, or do you need some structural basis to uh, have for consultation mechanisms to allow the British to try and influence EU decision-making and learn what's happening in the EU? I would go for the latter. Let, let's see what happens. That's one big issue. The second big issue do, do in fact, the British wish to exercise their right to disalign from EU standards on social environmental issues and other areas? Or do we, will we in practice not use that right to disallow? Will we stay quite closely aligned? Because it's probably easier for businesses if we do. That, that really depends uh, on all sorts of factors and we just don't know the answer. Third question, what about the Northern Ireland border? Is the current arrangement which does create de facto a sort of border in some respects in the Irish Sea for goods passing from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, is that politically sustainable? The unionist, committee, the unionist community in Northern Ireland doesn't like it at all. The fact that there are no tariffs now, thanks to the achievements of the TCA, is a help to make that border a bit more sustainable. But I'm not sure it's really politically sustainable in the long run, because a lot of people in the UK, including in the Tory party, really don't like it at all. And we saw with the internal market bill fury last September that many people, even in the British government and the Prime Minister himself, were quite keen to tear up elements of that border which leads to the fear of a new border being created between the north and the south of Ireland. So I think it's, I'm not at all sure that the Northern Irish provisions are really sustainable in the long run. And then a fourth, fourth question for the future. Are we going to be in constant litigation with the EU 
through the dispute settlement mechanism that's been established? Or will, in fact, we not use it too often? Will they not use it too often? Will we have a, have a sort of smooth and friendly relationship sorted out at high-level summits? Will we build up close personal relations between British leaders and European leaders rather than rely on courts and litigation all the time? We just don't know. My final question goes back to what David has already said about the Tory party. I think, assuming the Tory party stay in charge of the UK for the next few years, this seems likely, um, is the Tory party going to remain a, a party strongly influenced by the nativist nationalist tendency within it so that it'll seek to win votes by bashing Brussels, which is so easy for some people in the Tory party to do. And picking fights with Brussels is always a good vote winner, it always gets good headlines from certain newspapers in which case we will have an acrimonious, difficult relationship with the EU, I'm afraid. Or will people of David Liddington's ilk uh, become more important in the Tory party in, in the future and push for a more constructive, moderate relationship with the EU, in which case we can have a very good relationship, not acrimonious, and all sorts of weaknesses and in, in, uh, insufficiencies in the existing TCA can be sorted out and ironed out and improved in a modest way in the future. That is the big question. What happens to the Tory party? Does it go Trumpian or go back to the time of John Major and David Cameron? Thank you very much, Charles and Sam for your analysis and also to David for being our guest on this podcast. The deal might be done for now, but at CER we're expecting to be talking about Brexit for a long time into the future. Thank you all very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.